It's good to be together, as always. If I don't say it every week, it is always good, and I find joy in being together as a church, as Nate said, even on a day such as this. Well, we start a new series today. We're going to go through two books in this series, Ruth and Esther. Now, these are very different books from anything we've gone through recently. They are both Old Testament books. They are both narratives, that is, historical accounts, stories, telling of stories, and they are both named after and primarily about women. But I want to point out what may be obvious in that they are similar in this, that they are both books of the Bible. They're both God's word to us just as much as 1 Corinthians or Mark or any other book in the Bible. It's always a good reminder to uh, consider 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God, comes from the mouth of God to us. So we come to God's word, not just to hear nice, warm-hearted, sentimental stories, with which Ruth can kind of be, Esther not so much, not just to have our thoughts inspired or provoked, not just to be inspired. We come to God's word to have our creator God speak to us and reveal himself to us in ways that are powerful and effective, in ways that form and shape and change us. We are told that God's word is living and active like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. There is power in God's word. And that includes these books of Ruth and Esther. We should come with expectation, expecting God to speak and do a work and bear fruit in us. So our series title, if you've, if you've seen, is All Things Work Together. All things work together. And you may know this is a quote from Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Wonderful verse. Verse of tremendous comfort and, and hope and great promise from God. And I chose this verse as the theme of these books because a major theme that runs through and ties these books together is God's providence. Now, God's providence points to his purposeful rule over all things. That God, as in the words of Ephesians, that God is providentially working all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Providence doesn't just have to do with power or control. It has to do also with purpose. God is not just ruling. This is not the same as fate. He is ruling, ordaining, bringing all things about for a specific purpose. And as Christians, we believe that that purpose is good, that he is working good in all things. We'll unpack that more as we go. So we're going to start in Ruth today. We'll spend a few weeks in Ruth. It's a shorter book. Then we'll spend about five weeks in Esther. Uh, just a quick recommendation, if you want to dive into this topic a little, the topic of providence a little bit more during these next eight weeks or so, just a little book to recommend 
uh, Providence by John Piper. It is not necessarily a hard read. It is just a longer read. Um, and primarily because there's just lots of scripture in it. Lot, lots of good diving in, reading, and, and drawing out implications of scripture. So if you want to uh, just consider this topic more as we go through, I do recommend that. Okay, so we're going to jump right into Ruth today. We're going to cover all of chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land... And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. All right, there's a lot of details in there. There's a lot of context, historical context that we need to get situated with. Um, and as we go through these kind of historical details, remember this is not simply history, this is not simply just facts, this is God's history, God's story. God is giving us this for a purpose. So let me walk through some of what we find here. In the days when the judges ruled, so this is telling us when the events of this book of Ruth happened. The book of Ruth in your Bibles immediately follows the book of Judges, in the days when the judges ruled. And this is a time when the people of Israel will, were settled in the, the promised land, the land that God had promised to the descendants of Abraham. Uh, God had rescued them mightily out of Egypt. He had shown his great power in these ten signs or plagues over the Egyptians to rescue them from the, the, the horrible slavery that they were in in Egypt. The, the Israelites had come out of there. They had met with God at Mount Sinai where they received his covenant and his laws where God had said, you will be my people, I will be your God, here's who I am. And then they had been brought into this good land. Uh, notice here is, there is a reference to the land. They're in the land. Now once they had come into the land, God had given them these judges to rule over them, to lead them. Now, if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that this was not a good time in Israel. Most of these judges were horrible. They did not seek after God. They did not lead the people to seek after a God. Uh, they are a time, as, as Judges repeats over and over again, where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is a bad thing. Not right in God's eyes. Everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. And this is actually the very last verse of the book of of Judges right before Ruth. If the book of Judges were made into a movie, you would probably not take your kids to see it. Some horrible stuff happens in the book. The people of God are failing miserably at being the people of God. They are failing miserably at being a witness to God's good rule over them, God's wisdom and laws and presence with them. One commentator says, the book of Ruth is an oasis of life in a death-filled society, a pool of light in a dark world. As we read the story, we never forget that it took place in the days of the judges. Now, in addition to this spiritual depravity of this time, we also learn here that there was a famine in the land. Now, it is likely that these two things are related. 
That is, that this famine that we read about here was part of God's judgment for their faithlessness. In fact, God had made it clear that Israel's failure to stay faithful to him and, and instead turn after other gods would result in many types of judgment, including famine. So in Leviticus 26, starting in verse 14, we read, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. We see, we will see here, that Naomi will acknowledge that the ending of the famine is a result of God. The ending of the famine was not just chance or fate or just weather, atmospheric changes. No, the ending of the famine was God bringing relief. We can also say with confidence that it was God who brought the famine in the first place, and the likely reason was as a con consequence for the Israelites' failure to acknowledge God as God and heed his commands. So this is an evil and tragic time to be living in this land and to be the people of Israel. These are, these are dark days. Into this situation, we are introduced to a family, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Malan and Chilion. And we are told who they are, where they come from, they are of the clan, the Ephrathites, and the tribe, Judah, and the city, Bethlehem, of King David, who is to come just a few generations after this. And what we discover at the end of this book, which we're not going to get to today, but in a few weeks, what you discover at the very end of this book is that this is really what this book is about. It's about God's providence, not just in the small things, the everyday life things, but also in the big, grand story which he is bringing about. Specifically, the book of Ruth is about God keeping his promise and providentially bringing about, carrying on this line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through who will come King David, but more than that, through who will come Jesus, by whom God will bless all the peoples of the earth, as the promise to Abraham goes. And we're not gonna, I'm not going to turn there right now, but if you go to the very first book, the very first chapter of the New Testament in Matthew 1, you see that Ruth is mentioned there because she is the great-grandmother of King David. Again, this, this line of people through whom God will bring the Savior and Messiah, Jesus. So this is not just a story about Naomi or Ruth or Boaz, but ultimately a story about God's plan from before time began to draw a people to himself and save a people from all tribes and nations of the earth through Jesus, God in the flesh. When we read the Bible, we have to remember that it is one grand story. Yes, there are many human authors on the human level contributing to this, but from on the divine level, this is ultimately a story unified story told by God. And even the book of Ruth is helping prepare the way and pointing forward to Jesus. And so we only rightly understand Ruth 
when we take this step back and remember this grand story and remember that the ultimate hero and savior is not Ruth or Boaz, but Jesus, the one that we are meant to be astounded at and compelled by and to worship is Jesus, God in the flesh, come to save, to live, suffer, die, and rise again for us. Jesus, who came in the flesh so that all who call on him would be saved and have peace with God for all eternity, including this very day. So that's the big story that Ruth is a part of. That's the big story that Ruth is pointing us forward to and and helping us understand. Continuing on, we see that this family went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons go to the neighboring region of, of Moab and the people of Moab to hopefully find a better life. Now, this may be perfectly understandable. Maybe that's the only place where there was still uh, fertile ground and the, 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 the drought, the famine hasn't, hadn't affected so much. But it is a significant decision that they make and perhaps not the most commendable one. The Moabites were the traditional enemies of the Israelites. If you go back in, in, in the Bible a bit, you find the story of Balak, king of Moab, who tried to hire a pagan seer or prophet to curse Israel, but God intervened in this pagan prophet and would only allow him to bless Israel multiple times, which did not go over well with Balak. Soon after this event, the Israelites decide to join themselves up with the Moabites, and they married a bunch of the the daughters of Moab and in turn worshipped their gods, and this brought great judgment on Israel. So when you put all of this together, together and consider all that's going on here, things are really bad. The, the people are continually turning away from God. God's judgment is coming in the form of uh, both human enemies and natural disasters. And then this family, and perhaps other families, decides to go to the hated enemies, the despised people who surely also despise them, to seek a better life. Things then get worse. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there, that is in Moab, about ten years, and both Malan and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So things go from bad to worse if you're Naomi. She loses her husband, she loses her two sons, and then she's away from her people. In a a book that is ultimately about the, the good providence of God, in both big and little things, the beginning is full of tragedy and heartache. And the author doesn't try to sugarcoat this or make, make seem things, things seem okay. This is the time of the judges. This is the, that most horrible and wicked time among God's people. And things are not going well for 
for Ruth and for Naomi. And yet we know from the rest of God's word that such times of tragedy and heartache are not outside of God's providence. It is not the case that God's good and purposeful rule is only at work when good things happen and when tragedy and heartache come to an end and joy comes in the morning and we we give God thanks, rightfully so. No, God's good purpose is also at work when tragedy and heartache come. He is still providentially ruling over all things, working all things together for good, for the good of his people, and the glory and fame and renown of his name and his character to reveal himself to be good. As Job confesses, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In both giving and taking away, he is still worthy. As Joseph says to his brothers at the end of Genesis, in response to them first throwing him in a pit, And then selling him as a slave, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The very thing that happened due to his brother's evil and sin, which was really evil and really sin, ultimately happened to bring about God's good purpose, to bring about a greater good. Which means that at this point in our story in Ruth, when things do not look very hopeful, Naomi is not without hope because of who God is. In whatever part of the story of your life that God is weaving, that you find yourself in today, you are not without hope because of who God is. God's good providence is still at work. The fact is that hardship and heartache and tears and pain come in a world such as ours. There's no way around that. But God is still present and powerful and good. His goodness, his grace is not being put on hold. That's not what we are meant to learn by the presence of heartache, that God's grace and presence and goodness are on hold. But even now, they are working all things together for good in your life, if you are his. This is the wonderful truth and comfort held out to us in Romans 8.28 and that we see happening even here in Ruth. Continuing on, verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? 
No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now, this stands out as a very touching, heartwarming part of this story, right? If this were a movie or if we were actually there, we'd probably all be in tears. Naomi's concern for her daughters-in-law to find new husbands and thus be, be cared for is honorable. She asks God, prays to God to deal kindly with them. And, and in doing this, she, she uses the word hesed. You may have heard of this, this uh, Hebrew word. It's a very important word in the Old Testament. shows up about 250 times. Depending on your translation, it's translated as steadfast love, faithful love, unfailing love. And Ruth knows, or Naomi knows, that God is abounding in steadfast love, as God revealed of himself to Moses. And Naomi prays that he may be so. He may show this, this character, this kindness, this steadfast love to these women who are not even a part of Israel. Likewise, Ruth's faithfulness to her mother-in-law is also impressive. As the story goes on and, and they come back into the, to Bethlehem and the land of, of Israel, uh, Ruth is very highly thought of for these, how she acted, her faithfulness and commitment to her mother-in-law. As we'll see next week, Boaz is also exemplary in his character. Especially in a time when all of the, or most of the biblical characters that we come in contact with for this time period are pretty evil, these individuals stand out. They acknowledge God's presence, they, they pray to God, they appear faithful to God, they seek to love and care for one another as, they, as themselves. But we need to go a bit deeper than this. Again, God's Word is more than a nice, inspiring, sentimental story about great human deeds. Especially today, there is a temptation to elevate things such as sentimentality and inspiring human actions and achievements as the greatest things we have. If you watch the news or scroll through social media, you see a lot of this. Find inspiring stories, sentimental stories. And the point is, look at how kind and selfless and compassionate we as a human race can be. Let's just be more like that and all will be well. Now, there's a place for that. It's good to have good examples, good role models. But it is a major problem when we approach the Bible and Christianity as nothing more than simply a collection of inspiring and touching stories. Just as accounts of great human deeds. That's not what the Bible is about. That's not what Ruth is about. We have something much more powerful and lasting and more satisfying and greater than that. 
in Ruth and throughout Scripture and even in your lives today, the point is not what are the impressive or touching stories of human achievement or accomplishment or compassion. The question is, what is God doing? What has God done, and how does that compel our trust and our worship and our love? And this God-centeredness, that is, that God is really at the center of this, and it's really about Him, is clear in Ruth. So even in this section, as Ruth hears that the famine in the land has abated and, and, and dissipated, she, she doesn't just say, well, it happened. She says, the Lord has done it. The Lord had visited his people and given them food using the name of the Lord, Yahweh. She sees God's hand in and behind everything. And we can say confidently from the rest of the scripture that she's right to think like this. That, that our lives don't depend ultimately just on chance or fate we aren't ultimately dependent on atmospheric conditions or the scientific or biological process or even human decisions. We are ultimately dependent on God and we can and should look to Him and pray to Him in all things. He brings the rain and He brings the sun. He causes wind to come. He directs the winds. He feeds the birds. He causes flowers to grow. Even seemingly random things like the rolling of dice, Scripture says clearly that the result is up to God. Do you recognize this providential hand of God in your life? In both the big things and the small things. The overarching all-of-life things and the daily things. In the good things and in the hard things. In the good times, in the times for joy, do you give him thanks, recognizing that every good and perfect gift comes down from him? When hardship comes, do you seek him in prayer, knowing that things are still within his power and purposes, which may simply be to draw you closer to himself and cause you to depend on him more fervently? Do you acknowledge, do you recognize, do you devote your thoughts to the fact that God is providentially ruling over all things and is intimately involved in your life on a day-by-day -day basis? Now, this God-centered view of things becomes more clear in the last section that we'll cover today. As they uh, come back into Bethlehem, their hometown, or at least Naomi's hometown, um, Naomi considers what God has done, and it doesn't seem very good or encouraging. So verse 19, through to the end. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So you might think that there should be some encouragement here 
they're back home, or Naomi's back home. Um, but Naomi can't get over the fact of all that has happened since this time, since they were, were here. She left with a husband. She came back widowed. She left with sons and came back with none. And she ultimately sees this as coming from the hand of the Lord. Now, in reading biblical narrative like this, we don't automatically or we shouldn't automatically assume that everything the characters say, do, and believe is right. There are not good characters who say, do, and believe everything right and bad characters who say, do, and believe everything bad in Scripture. That's not the Bible. That's not life. Jesus is the only hero. So we need to let other parts of God's Word, particularly the, the teaching parts or the didactic parts, help us interpret how we ought to think about these narrative parts. And as we do, there seems to be an aspect here that Naomi gets right and an aspect that she's probably not right in. I'll start with the latter. So Naomi assumes that the tragic events of her life are coming as some kind of punishment from God, that God is against her. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says. That there must be some sin in her life that she's not repented of, and so God is displeased and, and bringing about these, these events. But nowhere are we told that that's the case. And tragedy in our lives in general doesn't necessarily mean God's displeasure or discipline. Rather, it seems that these tragic events happened, like the tragic things in the life of Joseph, to bring about a greater good for God to work his good purposes, as we'll see. There's a, there's a grand overarching providence of God here that reaches all the way back to Genesis and goes all the way forward to Jesus and further. God is at work here. So we need to be very careful not to connect every bad or hard thing that happens to us to some specific sin. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes not. it's not. Not always. We aren't always given the knowledge of why bad things happen. Sometimes the point is, seems to be simply just to teach us to further depend and trust in God when our tendency is to trust in ourselves and think that we're sufficient apart from God. But there's another way that Naomi is right. She is right to see even the tragedies in her life as ultimately coming underneath or within the sovereign hand of God. Though not necessarily as displeasure or discipline. Like with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. And like with Job, this doesn't necessarily mean that there's some sin, that if we just repent of that sin, then everything's going to go well for us in our life. Just stay faithful and hard, hardships and tragedies won't come. That's not Christianity. That's something like karma. That's failing to remember that even Jesus, who was sinless, experienced tremendous pain, suffering, and death. Now, we need to be very careful how we think and talk about God's relationship to suffering and especially evil. Failure to be careful about these things, Lord, leads to all sorts of problems. So, we can say with confidence that God does not sin. God does not delight in sin. God does not do that which is evil. God cannot be blamed for evil. There is the world, the flesh, and the devil at work. 
our own sin, the brokenness of the world, the devil. Furthermore, God certainly does not delight in our pain, whatever its source. He wept at the death of Lazarus. He delighted to heal people. Jesus delighted to heal people when he walked the earth. He was pleased to calm the storm simply because his disciples were afraid. We are told that God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people and bring us into an eternal home where there will be no more mourning, crying, or pain. We need to be very clear about how God views, even feels about human suffering and pain. That's not how God created the world with the presence of those things. That's not the world that God is bringing about. It is, in fact, a world without sin, death, and all of that. And yet we live in this world now that is full of sin and evil and brokenness. And the Bible doesn't let us conclude that God has no power over it. No say in it, no purpose in it. It doesn't teach us to think that God's power and purpose rule over only over good things, but not over tragic and evil things, as if tragic e and evil things were somehow operating outside of his purposes and power. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is even using those things to bring about his good purposes in an evil and broken world. Back to Joseph's statement in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that doesn't simply mean, thankfully, God was able to come in last minute and turn this thing around and make something good of it. No, it says God meant it for good. That implies that God meant this horrible situation to happen, not because he was pleased with the situation or the evil or the pain of it, but in order to bring about a greater good. You can say he allowed it. I think that's a little too weak because it doesn't imply God's purpose in it. You can say he caused it, but I think that's a little too strong because God is not the only cause. The sin, flesh, and the devil exist as well. I think words like ordain and providentially bring about providence are most helpful in this. They imply purpose. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British pastor, said this in a response to the objection that this seems like fate and implies that our lives and decisions and actions are meaningless. You will say this morning, our minister is a fatalist. Your minister is no such thing. Some will say, ah, he believes in fate. He does not believe in fate at all. What is fate? Fate is this. Whatever is, must be. But there's a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and blind eyes. Fate is a blind thing. It is an avalanche crushing the village down below, destroying thousands. Providence is not an avalanche. It is a rolling river rippling at the first like a rill down the sides of the mountain, followed by minor streams, till it rolls in the broad ocean of everlasting love, working for the good of the human race. 
The doctrine of providence is not what is must be, but that what is works together for the good of our race and especially for the good of the chosen people of God. What Spurgeon is getting at is that the providence of God, this relationship of his to our world and to our lives, is a good thing and is an attribute worth finding great comfort and rest in and celebrating and rejoicing. It would not be good if we couldn't trust the tragedies and heartache of our life to have come by, through, underneath the providential hand of God. If they were really chaotic forces outside of God's control. It is incredibly comforting to know that God can not only calm the storm in your life, or turn the storm into some good, but that the existence of the storm in the first place is still in line with God's purposes, which are always for the good of his people and always for the display of his glorious name. And the purpose of God's providence is, is our comfort, is our rest, is our strength and endurance but even more than that, that we might draw near to him and find him to be sufficient, find him to be a stronghold in the storm, find him to be good and worthy. The purpose of God's providence in all of the events of your life is that you might turn to him and find strength and, and trust in him and rest in him in both small things and big things. Like in Ruth, in bringing and then relieving a famine, in ordaining tragedy for Naomi and Ruth, only to bring about great blessing to them later on, in preserving the line of Abraham leading up to Jesus through the, one of the most unlikely individuals, a woman who is not even a part of the people of Israel who lost her husband, and even in ordaining the suffering and death of Jesus at the hands of wicked men. We read in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If you belong to God by faith in Jesus, nothing happens that is not according to the definite and plan and foreknowledge of God. If this was true of that most wicked of days in the death of Jesus this is still true in our own lives. Even your own sin and the sin done against you, though the responsibility of those who commit it and there are consequences for sin, it cannot but work for God's good purpose for your life. And of course, many of you know this from experience as you look back on your life. There are plenty of paths that your life has gone, plenty of things in your life that you would have never chosen for yourself, that were tragic, that were evil, that were sinful, that came with great agony and questions. But in hindsight, you see that God has used it for good, and you are thankful for what he's done. And if you are not a part of God's people, if you have not come to God's means of salvation, Jesus, and put your trust in him, his death for your sins. This is a call to come to him, to have this promise that all things work together for good. 
to find yourself in him rather than apart from him, to know that he is for you and always working for you. Which, as we know, is not a promise that all will go well and easy and pain-free in your life. That's not an option for any of us. But it is a promise that God will be for you and with you and all things will work to, towards his good purposes. That is not a, not a single molecule, not a single millisecond, not a single human intention can operate outside of God's power and purpose to satisfy his people with his goodness and magnify his name. He will do it. Let's pray.